tell me that they actually really like the, the music so nice i actually kind of dig it that's a that's a good thing or or dig it a lot i don't know <laughs> or dig it a lot <laughs> <laughs> so how, how are you doing my friend i mean huh? uh it's it's crazy we're actually recording this episode on sunday we normally record on saturdays yeah. i wasn't able to record yesterday simply because i had a uh, i had a birthday dinner to attend and now it's late on Sunday um, and we're here in the Fusion Underground. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. A little tired. Had a long day today but it was a, a great uh, experiment in uh, fatherhood outings <laughs> today. Family outings um, and super proud of the, uh, the family today. They all, they all did pretty good out. <laughs> They all did pretty good. Well, I'm they, glad you're here. Yeah, I'm me glad too. you're here. And uh, what is this? This is our fourth episode, isn't it? Is our um, fourth episode now? I, y- yes, I think so. Season yes. one of the fourth, the fourth episode of season one of the Fusion Underground. And here at the Fusion Underground, what we try to do is we try to make sense of the world by having at least what we consider to be principled discussions about various things, such as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission, as we know it, is to try to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. And as always, I'm your host, Manuel Ramirez, and I'm joined with my co-host, Jason Moret from Flagstaff, Arizona. And we're about ready to get this on. You know, we come to you, uh, tonight is kind of a crazy night. It's been a couple of crazy nights, and we, uh, we kind of... Um, spend a little bit of time debating this particular topic that we're going to get into today. And I think we're going to spend a majority of the time talking about this particular one because um, uh, the nation is on fire, quite literally. Literally, yeah. uh, Across the country. And there is here in, well, across all of Arizona where we live, I'm in Phoenix and Jason's up in Flagstaff and all of Arizona is now under curfew. And there is all kinds of there are all kinds of crazy stuff happening in downtown Phoenix, and it was even crazier last night. They actually uh, some rioters and looters uh, hit uh, Fash- Scottsdale Fashion Square. And for those who are unaware, Fashion Square is a very high end type of mall, a lot of really upscale type of type of stores. And they were, you know, some looters broke in and they were looting things out of the out of the mall yesterday. I think the I think the whole mall was closed today. Um, and, uh, there's actually craziness going on in Washington, DC. Last I heard the, uh, what is it? St. John's Episcopalian church there in Lafayette square, right across, just, uh, right across the, the street from the white house. Part of it was on fire. This is a, uh, it's really sad. The St. John's church. I mean, it was, it's been there since, well, part of the, part of the parish, um, since 1815, 
Um, and I'm sorry, no, the church was consecrated in 1816. In fact, the bell in the bell tower was forged by um, uh, Paul Revere's son. And it was one of only two bells that he, uh, that he made. And uh, the, this bell in St. John's is still active to this day. They still ring it. Um, and every single president has, um, well, at least since it's, you know, since it's founding or whatever, has, um, I think since Madison, is it Madison, um, has worshipped there at this particular church. And there's even a pew dedicated to all the presidents. So it's, it's a, there's a pew dedicated to the president. Whenever the president comes and has a service there at St. John's, they sit in a special, in a special spot within the church. And I mean, this is a, a historic site for uh, not just Washington DC, but for all the United States. And uh, you know, it, I don't, I don't know what's happening to it right now. I'm hoping that the fire department was able to get there and take care of the, the fire, but part of it was on fire tonight. What are you thinking about all this stuff? I'm 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 beyond upset about all this, all the the looting and the destruction, and you know when when you when you first talked to me um, about some of the stuff going on, I I really didn't even want to discuss it. I really didn't. I know. Um, uh, I'm, but we're we're you're gonna force me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a little bit of a disclaimer, and I talked to you about this earlier. Um, you know, we we've we did we've kind of hemmed hemmed and hawed about doing this. I know you were really reluctant to talk about it. I was um, I didn't want to talk about it initially earlier in the week. I didn't want to bring it up, um, but then uh, crazy stuff started happening. I was up until probably one o'clock yesterday morning or this morning actually uh, paying attention to the news and following things that were happening in various cities around the country. And I felt that, um, that I, we had to talk about it and we had to talk about it because right in our introduction, we talk about how we will talk about current events and we will talk about politics. And our whole purpose is to try to look at those things with a much more critical eye. Um, and I think this is an opportunity to do just that. I think there are a lot of other topics that we would have liked to have talked about before this, before we got into something like this, but here we are, because this is kind of a big defining moment in, uh, in our culture, in our society right now with everything that's going on. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. But I also had a few people reach out to me and ask if we were going to be talking about this, not from the perspective of, please, I don't want you to talk about it, but actually the, the, um, the, the, just the opposite where they were reaching out to me saying, Hey, are you going to be talking about this? Because this would be love to hear what you guys have to say about this. So, um, after you know, after getting those those messages, uh, I I told you about it, and and I think that kind of puts you over the edge to say, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Yeah, no, when 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 we've got listeners saying I we <laughs> want to hear you guys' opinion on on the issue, I I have a real hard time saying no. So I I think it's only fair that we actually uh, uh, dive into it. Um, you know, and right up front, I'll, I'll give you my my two cents for what it's worth. Um, because I, I, well, we might as well just do it. Um, what happened to George Flynn is absolutely disgusting. It's disgusting and it's wrong. And there's no justification for what happened to him whatsoever. And the officer and officers, excuse me, involved should and are 
being a um, prosecuted for that. Um, you know, it's interesting to me when I talk to people and I say, well, you know, look at what's happened in response to George, George Floyd. You know how many people have told me um, who? Have actually asked me directly, who? And I say, well, what do you think about the arrest of uh, Derek Chauvin? Or Chauvin, excuse me. And again, the, the reaction is more, even more overwhelmingly, who? And this is probably at the heart of what irritates me the most about all this. That was a travesty. And Americans all over have every right to be absolutely furious about what happened to that man and demand justice for what happened to that man. And we should know who George Floyd is and we should know who Derek Chauvin is, but most people don't because we have degenerates around this country who are using this situation to loot businesses, steal property, and destroy businesses and private property and public institutions alike for, I'm sorry, it has absolutely nothing to do with George Floyd. And that's what disturbs me the most. We should be absolutely focused on justice for that man. And we're not. And every single act of violence, act of destruction that these people are out there doing right now spits in the face of that man. Well, no, and I agree. You know, there was a video that I saw earlier. I, I can't remember if it was today or yesterday. Um, this uh, elderly black woman, she was being interviewed by one of the local um, uh, media in her town. And, uh, you know, all this is happening all over the, all over the country. So I, don't, I can't even tell you if it was in Minneapolis or not. Um, and when she, she was, she was in tears while she was talking to the reporter and she was crying about how she, she doesn't understand why her community is burning and why the rioters and the looters destroyed the shops that she visits. And now that those shops are destroyed, she doesn't have a car. She she doesn't make a lot of money. She has a very limited income. And now she no longer has the stores that she frequently visits to get things like groceries and, you know, her local pharmacy to get things from there and, and, uh, and just the clothes that she wears. She no longer has those stores in her community to be able to buy that. And she was crying because now she doesn't know how she's going to be able to shop for the things that she needs on a regular basis because she, to do so, she's going to have to go several miles away to be able to right. do that. And that's just not, that's just not feasible for this woman. Um, these people are rioting and they're burning down their own, their own communities. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to get into this a little bit. We're, we're going to get into this in just a few minutes, but we're kind of setting the stage. And for those that, for those of you who are, you know, wondering, well, George Floyd, who, um, <laughs> You know, there, there might be there might be a few people listening that are wondering, well, who, who are we talking about? Um, and just to just to set the stage of, of was it a week ago or a week and a half ago? I don't even remember the day that it occurred. Um, but some some I think it was even over a, a twenty dollar counterfeit bill 
if I'm not mistaken, he was, the cops were called because he was trying to pass a 20, a counterfeit $20 bill and he was arrested. He eventually wound up on the ground and video of the arrest shows that he wasn't fighting the arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, at least any of the video footage that I've seen. I don't know if there's more that's um, more out there that maybe he was fighting, but I haven't seen it. I didn't see anything where he was resisting arrest. Anyway, he was, the cops had him face down, you know, face down on the cement. And uh, of course he's a, he's a black man and a white cop put his knee on his neck, on the back of his neck. And there's video of Floyd saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, and a few minutes later, uh, apparently the cop held his, held his, uh, you know, was, had his knee on his neck for like eight minutes. And as a consequence of this treatment, George Floyd died. Uh, he was, he was rushed to the hospital. Paramedics came and took him and he, he was pronounced dead. Um, and so now this has created this, uh, this, you know, this powder keg that is now exploding all over the country. So, um, but there, there's, there's some things that I want to unpack here because um, one, who are these people that are doing it? Um, what's been happening throughout the different cities in America? What are we supposed to think of all of this? Right. Because they were they were we had members of the black community who were protesting and they were protesting the death of George Floyd and they were protesting, you know, white cops killing black men. And there is a belief there is a very systemic belief that this happens all across the country and that this there's a systemic belief that this is a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. And so I want to kind of unpack that and look at is this really a systemic problem? And if it is, what's causing it? Or if it's not, what could be other causes of this? What is, what is happening? I, need, I think we need to look at this in a critical way uh, and try to understand that. So do you have any thoughts on, on anything that I've said here so far? Um, no, no, so far you're right on. Um, again, this is very much a, the white cops kill black people. Um, that's it. In a nutshell, that's that's the argument. Um, and one thing I will add, keep in mind that um, while a uh, vast majority of the people that you're talking about who are out protesting and, and rooting and lying are um, black people in those black communities who are saying that the blacks are the ones being oppressed, it's, it is not exclusive to that. But yes, you are absolutely correct in what you've said so far that that, that makes up the majority of that demographic. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to try and figure out why. Um, this, not as in a finger-pointing kind of uh, manner, but definitely want to try and understand what is at play so that we can actually treat this as, is it a systemic issue um, or is it um, a, a collection of circumstances? Um, is it a, a profiling situation? What is really going on? So we have to actually really open that up. So I want to, I'm showing something here. Hopefully you can, you can see it. And um, one second here. Um, so hopefully you can see this. This is uh, some graphs. Um, this is data that's taken from, so there's a, there's a website called Statista. I don't even know how to pronounce it. S-T-A-T-I-S-T-A.com. Mm-hmm. And they compile 
statistics from all sorts of uh, sources and you can purchase various reports. Uh, you can purchase the data itself so that you can run your own data analytics on these various data sets. Well, this is uh, from some research that was done um, about police brutality in the United States. And the graph that I'm showing here is the number of people shot to death by the police in the United States from 2017 to 2020 by race, looking at it by race. So there's, there's some interesting things about this right off the bat. Um, you know, we're, we're told that cops kill black people uh, in record numbers. Well, by looking at the data, you know, the blue ones here is 2017, and then this dark blue one, this navy blue one is 2018, and then the gray one is 2019. This red or maroon color is 2020. What's interesting about this is we see that cops are actually killing whites more so than blacks. And you might say, well, Manuel, you know, whites outnumber blacks by by uh, by a steep margin <clears throat> yes that's true they do but i want you to also think about something and keep in mind i'm not trying to the whole purpose of this conversation and where i'm going with this this is i'm in no way making any or trying to make any kind of excuses for cops behaviors i'm not trying to um, make any kind of racial remarks here what i'm doing and i need people to understand this what i'm doing right now and what i intend to do over the next several minutes while we continue to unpack this is i'm simply describing data and what people need to understand is there is a difference between describing data and then believing something those two things are not the same thing Okay, if I describe the color of a car, that doesn't mean I like the car. It doesn't mean I dislike the car. All it means is I'm describing the color and the features of the vehicle itself. I hope that makes perfect sense for people. I hope people can understand that. So what I want people to understand is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to describe various data and research that has been done around this entire problem or around the issue, I should say, of police brutality. Now, we have a high number of whites who are shot to death by police over the years, um, but Hispanics are not too far off. Now, the question from blacks here, what's interesting to me is, first of all, the Hispanic population is not out rioting and looting over uh, Hispanic deaths by police officers. Why is that? I think that's a question that deserves to be asked. The black community is. They, they lead Hispanic deaths, but not by a lot, not by, not by leaps and bounds. Now, I mentioned before that whites outnumber blacks. Yes, that's the case. But keep in mind that a lot of these cop these police killings that we see in the media and we see these riots and these lootings taking place, these are occurring in Democrat and often black controlled cities, cities like Baltimore. Just a few years ago, Baltimore had riots over the exact same type of thing where we have black mayors and black city council members and black police chiefs 
And we also have blacks within these police forces in all of these various cities. Minneapolis is no different. We have, so we have these, these racial disparities in terms of leadership where we actually have members of the black community who are in, in situation or they are in uh, places of power, at least within these communities. So could we not say that maybe, um, should we ask the question of, are these black leaders using police officers to hunt and kill down white people? I don't think that's an appropriate question to ask. I think that would be ludicrous. And just the sound of that question is probably ludicrous to people on its face, and it should be. But somehow that's not ludicrous when we start looking at cops killing black people. And, and we also have to remember that we have black officers in, these police, in, in the police force. So again, the question becomes, do we really have a situation where police are hunting black, young black men or black men in general? I mean, we had the Colin Kaepernick kneeling and, and the black athletes in the NFL kneeling because this is what they think. So what, I mean, looking at these numbers, I mean, what, it, what is it that you, that you take away from these, from this? Well, and it's like you said, I'm, I'm looking at, and I'm going to go to 2017 just because it, it stands out the most. Um, white people shot and killed by police is double that of blacks. And almost three times as much um, as Hispanics. But there's no outrage in that regard. Um, right. We don't have white communities rampaging. No, you, you, you're not going to see uh, rallies where um, we say white people matter. White lives matter. That's not acceptable. Actually, even saying that or suggesting that is racist, or so we're told. Um, and like you were mentioning, you know, the, the Hispanic deaths um, by police officers is not that far off from uh, the black statistics. Why do we not see... Um, Hispanic Americans out in droves and, and why do we not see them out um, you know burning down their own neighborhoods and and setting fire to their own church neighborhoods or, or churches excuse me um, where where is the discrepancy well and I and I have another and I have another little article here this is actually um, taken from research that was conducted in 2016 um, it, a study and an, so a study was conducted in 2016 and it was published um, didn't actually get published until about 2019 last year I think early last year and um, the topic of this particular study or the purpose of this study was to look at looked at um, are white cops likelier to shoot dead African Americans than black ones are in other words we're looking at the race, the, the race of the cop doing the shooting and basically doing the killing of the, of the perpetrator. Um, and what the study found is that white cops are not likelier to shoot dead, to shoot African-Americans. Um, so let me read this little piece from this, uh, from this article. In 2016, Roland Fryer, an economist, published a controversial paper. Having analyzed thousands of police reports from 10 American cities, he found that police showed racial bias in all forms of force against African-Americans. That would seem pretty um, contentious. That's pretty provocative, that statement alone. I mean, it, it, basically what it said is the researcher found that police 
yes, there is a racial bias uh, in how they apply force to African-Americans. However, where it, makes, where it turns really interesting is in the next part. Right. I'm, I'm sensing a but coming. Yes. They found racial bias in all forms of force against African-Americans except one, the use of guns. While blacks were more likely to be tasered, hit with a baton, and generally roughed up when it came to being shot by police, they were in no more danger than whites. Let me repeat that. While blacks were more likely to be tasered, hit with a baton, and generally roughed up, when it came to being shot by police, they were in no more danger than whites. When the researcher, Roland Fryer, did a more detailed analysis of one city, Houston, Texas in particular, he found whites were more in danger of being shot by cops than blacks. So we actually have some social science research that's disproving this, that's saying, no, we don't have a situation where black men or blacks in general are more likely to be killed by white cops. In fact, that the opposite is true. Now, are there some things to take away from that? Absolutely. There are some things about, you know, how do we contend with the racial bias in terms of the other violence and the batoning and the tasering? Are those really necessary? Is, is that a problem? Do police officers and, and police forces need to take that into consideration? Probably. I think that's a question that deserves to be asked and it deserves to be answered by police chiefs around the country. But again, that the entire narrative that white cops are out hunting black men is not supported by this evidence. No, I agree. And, and, and again, if you're going to look specifically at the use of deadly force um, when it comes to white officers um, versus black perpetrators, um, the data is not there to support that argument. However, as you brought up, I mean, when we look at um, a lot of what the Black Lives Matter movement is really trying to portray is that the, the violence is there. Um, you know, George Floyd was not, kill, was not shot and killed. Um, it was by an excessive use of physical force. Uh, the, the situation you mentioned in Baltimore, um, where, and, and I, I'm, and this is, this is the problem, unfortunately, the actual individual, the victim to whose name is escaping me, unfortunately, at the moment, um, was not shot. It was a use of physical force. So if you were going to try and make the argument that um, white cops want to use excessive physical violence, okay? Um, but if you're saying that, with, that white cops are out hunting um, black men, the data's not there. No, it's not there. And when we look at when we look at some other some other trends that um, you, you know that that are that are out there, and this is data that was taken directly from the Justice Department. And I know people are going to say, "Yeah, but it's the government; it's Justice Department, so we shouldn't." Well, you know what? Uh, a lot of researchers pull data from government agencies. They go out there and they pull data, and they're not necessarily looking to prove a point by just collecting data. Again. All I'm trying to do here is describe some data and describe some statistics that are actually out there so that we can then synthesize all of that information and try to unpack what's actually happening across the country a little bit more. When you, when you look at the data that's captured for 
um, for violent crimes in the United States. Violent crimes, so even though whites outnumber uh, blacks by a considerable portion, blacks actually um, perform outperform the, the majority of violent crimes in the United States by almost double that of whites. Let me repeat that. Blacks, blacks outperform whites in, in uh, violent crimes by almost double. Okay, that's, and again, I'm not trying to make any excuses for whites. I'm just stating what the actual data is showing. And then that's what the data is showing. In 2008, the homicide victimization rates for blacks was six times higher than the rate for whites. And we're talking victimization for blacks, okay? Um, but that, that poses an interesting question. So we have, we have black victims, they're victims by, you know, they, they are six times likelier to be killed. And the question becomes, well, why is that? Why, why are blacks six times more likely to be the victim of homicide than whites? Are you are you posing that question? You, well, I, po <laughs> I, I pose it out there, and you know, what what do, what do you think that might be? Well, or why do you think that might be? Um, okay, so let let's run through the talking points first. So, of course, um, because of the the massive amounts of oppression that's in this country against blacks, they are in impoverished areas at a higher percentage than whites. I mean, that's, that's, um, I've heard that argument. I'm sure you have as well. So it is um, by, because of that oppression that um, blacks are more engaged in um, illegal activities such as gang-related um, violence, um, drug distribution, um, consumption, et cetera, um, because they do not have the same kind of opportunity that anyone else in this country has because of that oppression that they're experiencing. So those are the talking points. But again, speaking to um, what you've already said, it, it's <clears throat> there is a disproportionate number of black um, violent crime over whites, Hispanics, or any other race in this country. That's, that's not me making a judgment. That is just data-based fact. So I have, some, I have some more in here because for people listening, they might think, might think well, Manuel, what you just shared there, there you probably left a little, a little bit of a gap, right? We've got, because what I talked about just there was about the victimization. Blacks were six times more likely to be the victim of a violent crime. The question is, who's doing, who's doing the crime? Um, according to the same data set from the Department of Justice, um, blacks were also six times more likely than whites to be the offenders of the violent crimes. When we look at the actual statistics for murders, 93% of black victims were killed by blacks. Let me repeat that. 93% of black victims, black homicide victims, were killed by other blacks. That's an astounding, that's an astounding statistic. That is a, a, a statistic that anybody who is, who is black or lives in the black community, they should be appalled by that number. They should be shocked to the core. And the question becomes, 
why? Why is it that blacks are killing blacks to the tune that 93% of black victims, of black homicide victims, were perpetrated by other blacks? That, that's disgusting to me. That is, that is astounding to me how high that percentage is. And, and I'm, I'm really curious to try and, and really dive in. And I might have to do some, uh, a little bit more research on my own. You know, I know um, the uh, um, Highway Safety Institute, they basically said that you're, you're most likely to accident within, I think it's two miles of your house. Um, I'm very curious to see if violent crimes of that nature, especially murders, um, actually take place in that same um, vicinity radius. Uh, because if that is the case, that could lead to a, a higher percentage of black-on-black -black crime if you believe that, that most, um, we'll say, um, the black culture tends to congregate in those same areas together. That could um, explain some of that data, at maybe not give it a, a, an explanation as to why the violent crime is happening in the first place, but at least for the frequency. Again, yeah. just looking at data for data's sake to try and understand what those numbers mean. Um, you know, I, I have kind of a, a, general, a general theory about the why. You know, I, as I was looking out, and looking at this data, you know, I can't help but think about the narrative, right? The narrative is cops are going out there, white cops are going out there and they're hunting blacks. And I see people, I see people at these protests, these rioters, they're holding up these signs. And some of these signs say things like, you know, stop killing blacks or stop hunting blacks. And as I look at this research that has been done on homicides, the research that's been done on fatal force caused by cops, um, that just doesn't hold true. That, that, that narrative, that premise, just isn't an accurate premise. Does it happen? Yes, obviously it happens. We have this situation with George Floyd. There have been some other issues uh, in the past, like for example, around Ferguson, in, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, in Baltimore, there have been these situations where, uh, where cops, where white cops have, um, you know, inadvertently, and you know, in this situation, it's, it's, I think there's a strong argument to say that there was at least third degree murder that was committed in, this, in, the, in the instance of George Floyd. That's a, that's a bad cop. That's not bad of all police officers. That's one bad individual. And apparently that cop has had all kinds of extra disciplinary problems and procedural problems in the past. And this is the camel that broke the straw that broke the camel's back. I get it. Some of these other situations where white cops have killed black perpetrators, um, some of that has not been straight up murder. It's been inadvertent because of the context. Um, it, can be, it, it can be inadvertent because the perpetrator was resisting arrest or was trying to attack the, the cops. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of debate around Ferguson, Ferguson, Missouri, and even the, the data that was shown on that particular case 
was found to was found to be inadvertent. In other words, it wasn't directly murder. It wasn't the cops went and hunted the black perpetrator down and murdered him. So we do have some situations where force is applied and the person dies, um, which is terrible and shocking. In this case, it does appear that this was a cop who went overboard and ended up murdering the guy. Um, but the question then becomes, well, if the research doesn't hold water in terms of the premise, and in other words, the premise of white cops are hunting black men, based on the research, that doesn't really hold true. That premise doesn't really hold true. So what else is it? Um, in my opinion, you know, going, you know, trying to find a reason for why this may be, I can't help but look at, well, who is it that is dying from, uh, you know, from black violent crimes? And when we look at who's actually doing the dying, you find that the vast majority of them are young black men between the ages of 17 and 29. Um, and that, to me, that speaks volumes. To me, that speaks of youth that has embraced chaos, youth that has no sense of discipline, and youth, youth that has completely gone off the rails with black men, black young, young black men. And so then I start wondering, well, well why is that happening? Um, and the only thing that I can really point to within literature, within existing research out there that contributes to this kind of thing among black men is a lack of black fathers. So what do you think about that? No, I can. Um, <clears throat> well, I knew we were going to be unboxing some things, but all right, let's let's dive into that. Um, I, I, I. OK, so I was out today. I know I told you and uh, I took the family out and we went, uh, we went fishing out at the lake and um, had the two kids and my wife and I and grandma and grandpa were there and um, we were prepared for all contingencies, but um, luckily the family did really good. But one of the things that I, as the father had to make sure of was not only that my kids are safe, but am I going to be able to do anything besides just kind of wrangle kids? And, you know, my, my four-year-old, bless her heart, she's, um, she's, she's great. She listens very well. But we also have to consistently and continuously make sure she understands the rules of the situation going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, whether that's, hey, we're in the boat, that means you have your life jacket on. Don't go over near the water. Don't. You know, that might sound like little minor things to most people, but it's learned behavior. And she's actually learning where her limitation and bounds are. And, you know, we're out in the woods where God knows what else is out there. I mean, not, not to mention um, any of the wild animals, but let's be honest, there's some crazy people out there every once in a while. And knows and because we have instilled an idea in her that when we say stop, you stop. And what we say, get over here, you listen. And it's not because we're trying to be overly strict, but we, we want her to be able to start and play. But there's a safety buffer and setting up an expectation of, of even right and wrong comes from the parents. And I guess leaning back to an older idea, it was always the father's job to be the despair and we didn't listen i mean everybody had a dad who's uh or everybody's heard their mom say well you just wait till it's home 
man, that was the worst thing in the world. But you knew that was because you stepped out of line and there had to be recompense um, paid in some way, shape, or form. And that father figure, I believe, you call it sexist if you will, I don't really care at this point, um, has to step up and make sure that that's, there, those lines are clearly defined. And it's not about being cruel. It's about, and most, I think, kids actually look for that. They need that sense of structure there. I mean, ask any teacher out. You, you can tell um, when a classroom's in complete chaos and disarray, they have no structure. When they have that, they lean on that, they need that, and they're able to focus their energies a heck of a lot better. There's, there's, one, other, there's one other piece, um, and I, wanna, I want people to kind of hold on to that, that concept of, of, um, of fatherhood for just a minute, because before we go too far down that path, there might be some people that are going to say, well, Fatherhood, that's, that's one possibility. But, uh, but what, about, what about slavery? You know, how has slavery impacted uh, the black community? And, and there's a reason why I'm bringing that up. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because there are a lot of these protesters, these rioters, who are getting in the face of journalists. They're, they're re- video recording themselves. They're talking about reparations for slavery. They're blaming a lot of the the turmoil within the black community and the oppression that they believe that they are under. They believe that this oppression comes from slavery, that it is a byproduct of when blacks were slaves in this country. And so what I'm trying to say is my, my thesis right now is, look, I think it's a lack of fathers in black homes. And, and that's why I kind of started that point. But there might be other people listening that say, well, yeah, but what about the idea or the argument by the black community itself that says, no, 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 it's actually slavery and something must be done with, uh, with that. Well, there's a, um, I think he's a national treasure my, my, by just my personal honest opinion. His name is Dr. Thomas Sowell. Um, for those of you who do not know Dr. Thomas Sowell, he's a black He's a black man, black American, uh, and he's an economist, and he has done a considerable amount of research and study not just in the tying economics to social behavior uh, in various different forms. And he often writes about racial inequality and from an economic standpoint uh, within the United States. And so there's there's a really interesting article that that Thomas Sowell has written. Dr. Thomas Sowell called the scapegoat for strife in the black community. I'm going to read some of this, some of this to you. Um, Sowell writes discussions of racial problems almost invariably bring about the cliche of a legacy of slavery, but anyone who is being serious as distinguished from being political would surely want to know if whatever he is talking about, whether fatherless children, crime or whatever is in fact a legacy of slavery or of some of the many other things that have been done in the century and a half since slavery ended. Another cliche that has come into vogue is that slavery is America's original sin. The great Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said that a good catchphrase could stop thinking for 50 years. Catchphrases about slavery have stopped people from thinking for even longer than that. 
Today, the moral horror of slavery is so widely condemned that it is hard to realize that there were thousands of years when slavery was practiced around the world by people of virtually every race. Even the leading moral and religious thinkers in different societies accepted slavery as just a fact of life. No one wanted to be a slave, but their rejection of slavery as a fate for themselves in no way meant that they were unwilling to enslave others. It was just not an issue until the 18th century, and then it became an issue only in Western civilization. Uh, so he goes on and he talks about how uh, Africans, Asians, Polynesians, and various other people have all been slaves or owned slaves at one time. Then he goes, what was special about America was not that it had slavery, which existed all over the world, but that Americans were among the very few peoples who began to question the morality of holding human beings in bondage. That was not yet a majority view among Americans in the 18th century, but it was not even a serious minority view in non-Western societies at the time. Then how did slavery end? We know how it ended in the United States at a cost of one life lost in the Civil War for every six slaves freed, but that is not how it ended elsewhere. So he goes on and talks a little bit about that. Um, and then he says, uh, were children raised with only one parent as common at any time during the first 100 years after slavery as in the first 30 years after the great expansion of the welfare state in the 1960s? As of 1960, 22% of black children were raised with only one parent, usually the mother. 30 years later, two thirds of black children were being raised without a father present. What about ghetto riots, crimes in general, and murder in particular? What about low levels of labor force participation and high levels of welfare dependency? None of those things was as bad in the first 100 years after slavery as they became in the wake of the policies and notions of the 1960s. That is, that is huge. And, and I think that that deserves some unpacking there. What Thomas Sowell has noted based on the research that he has done is he is saying that after slavery, we did not have the type of violent crimes. Um, we didn't have, we didn't see riots in the ghettos among the black community in the 100 years after slavery. But all of that took off after the welfare state and the various welfare policies of the 1960s were implemented. I mean, and that, I mean, that is just huge. Thomas Sowell goes on, he says, it might never occur to many of them to check their beliefs against some hard facts about what actually happened after their ideas and policies were put into effect. Uh, it certainly would not be pleasant to admit, even to yourself, that after promising progress towards social justice, what you actually delivered via all vis-a-vis -vis all of these welfare policies in the 1960s was a retro regression, was a retrogression toward barbarism. So that is huge. I mean, what Thomas Sowell is doing is he's calling out the left. He's calling out many on the left who, is, who have implemented these various welfare programs since the 1960s. And as a result of these welfare programs, what we've seen, what the data shows, is that we've had a spike in, in poverty. We've had a spike in the breakdown of the black family, and which lends me to believe, and Thomas Sowell is one of them, that with the breakdown of the black family, with the removal of black fathers from the black family, that now we've set a terrible precedent for our children and we've put our black children on these, on this road to total chaos. What are your thoughts about what Thomas Sowell had to say? No, and I understand, <clears throat> I can understand exactly where that comes from and, and really looking at, looking at it from a welfare perspective. And this is not a welfare discussion necessarily, but I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, something that we talked about very early on when it comes to fatherhood. I know you and I have, 
is the idea of a father being a provider for the family. And I know, you know, my personal beliefs on that, that uh, above all else, um, I believe a father's job is to be the provider for the family. Now, that's not to say that women aren't allowed to be the breadwinner, but it's, it's different, at least to me, in the fatherhood perspective of being that provider. When you remove that out of it, and you have absolutely no means in order to do the provisions, you look to someone to step in and actually do that. And that enter vis-a-vis the um, welfare system. Now, there's, and we've seen, in a, in a, I'm going to sidetrack just for a second. We've seen a lot of people actually who, in, in light of all the routine, lose their job and go on to unemployment, right? Um, they actually increased the um, unemployment benefits significantly higher than they've ever been. Um, you know, I, I think at one point we're up to almost, it was like $800 a week. There's a lot of people who <laughs> very educated and well-off people do not make that. Money. Um, and if you're in a system that's actually paying you that kind of money weekly to do nothing, well, then the, the question comes and has come, well, why would I even want to go back to work? So take that same situation and bring it into a, a welfare state where you've actually provided everybody everything. It's handed to them. They've got to work for nothing. And I'm not making disparaging comments on anybody who actually needs that hand up. But when it comes to receiving that handout, you become dependent upon it and then start to question, why should I have to um, provide anything for myself or family. So when you've got a situation, you're actually developing a dependence on that. You actually lose a sense of self-worth in being able to provide even for yourself. Then you are on a path of discovery on what you're even, um, what you're made of, what you're capable of. And without that kind of defining line of what you need to do to be able to provide, that opens up a whole, basically that's the idle minds and idle hands created. It's just and, and I, I believe that this is a, a very large part of that. It does factor. You know, I'm glad you were talking a little bit more about the, um, about the welfare state. Um, because I have some, I have, I have some good data on that. I have a really <laughs> interesting, I have a really interesting study. I'm not going to read the study, but I'm going to give a summary over it. Um, because I think it's really important. Um, and the conclusion of this, of this particular study uh, is that it was conducted by George J. Borges, Dr. Borges. Um, and this study was published in 2015, 2015, 2016. So Dr. Borges did a study on the welfare state, um, looking at welfare programs after the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. And what that act did, this was congressional law that was signed by President Clinton. What it did is it made it more difficult for immigrant households to be eligible for welfare, um, welfare handouts or welfare programs. Now, in light of that, what happened was was a lot of states decided, well, we're not gonna we're not going to allow um, 
our citizens to be put at risk of losing any of their welfare benefits. So they created additional rules and laws to shore up citizens so that they could, that the poor Americans, so that poor Americans could still receive welfare benefits. Well, immigrants in this country who were receiving welfare benefits up until 1996, um, they had all of a sudden their welfare benefits were dropped because of this particular act. So Dr. Borges went in and said, I want to look at this data. What's going to happen to these, to these immigrant families? What he found was that contrary to every, everybody's belief, uh, we had all of these different leftist views and leftist states that said, you know what, if, if, we, cut, if we cut welfare benefits to people, what's going to happen is it's going to cause those families to spiral further into poverty. And what Dr. Borges found was the exact opposite. Dr. Borges found, no, 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 no. Cutting the, cutting these welfare dollars to immigrant families did not make the immigrant families more poor. In fact, what it did is it actually encouraged them to increase their labor supply. His words, not mine. What that means is, they went to work. The immigrant family said, oh crap, we're not going to be getting as much money from, our, from the welfare programs as we were getting before, so let's go get a job. And they did exactly that. The welfare numbers, the, as the welfare dollars declined, their labor pool increased and they started working more hours or they got a, a you know, went from a part-time job to a full-time job, or if they were working only one part-time job, they got a second part-time job to make up for the, for, for the cost. And because of that, in many cases, their, their, their standing, their economic standing in society actually increased because they now were getting more money because they went out, they increased their labor pool, and they actually made more money by having a job than they did off of being on welfare. And Dr. Borges in his study concluded that welfare does not reduce poverty. It in fact actually increases it. And this is something that other economists such as Dr. Thomas Sowell and Dr. Walter E. Williams have been saying for a long time. And this is a recent study that proved that point, that showed it uh, based on looking at the numbers and actually looking at how these families were responding to the lack of welfare dollars. So, you know, we have into your point being that if we're going to increase welfare programs for families, we're actually doing them a disservice more overall by giving them all of this welfare handouts. No, and, and I truly believe that, honestly. You know, you've heard me say before, if I lost my job tomorrow, um, I would have to go out and find another one. And if it wasn't, get two, you know, whether it's delivering pizzas or doing whatever. I, I don't really believe, I really don't believe in my heart of hearts that I'm alone in that idea. And, and I really do believe that, and, and we'll just, I'm just going to say 99% of people out there, if they're in danger of losing their homes and losing their, uh, and not being able to provide food for their family, they will. Will, um, will do what they need to, to make ends meet. And when you create a sense of self-worth in people by knowing that they have life skills and they have job skills and they can be gainfully employed, um, then they will seek to do that more if necessary. If you've got someone who's a, a, a carpenter 
and they say, you know what, I know I can do this, or I don't care if they, they work the register at a, a Circle K or 7-Eleven, that's fine. They know that they can be employed. They can earn an income. They have that sense of accomplishment and self-worth. And they come up against a situation where they need more income. They are going to be the ones who actually say, you know what, boss, I need to either pick up more hours or can I get a raise or, you know what, I'm going to have to have uh, some move my shifts around so that I can get a night time job to this as well. Whatever it may be, people are going to do that, I think, inherently. When you have a, an entire society who's dependent on getting anything they have from someone else, then that's what they know. And then you're, you're really walking a fine line whether that, that obtainment is lawful or unlawful, which I think plays a point that you were trying to bring up earlier. Yeah, and... You know, I've, you know, I've got, you know, I'm looking at all of this and when, when you, when you, when you look at, at all of the data, I mean, you know, before the, before the welfare program and the welfare state was implemented, before, you know, in the 1960s, um, you had something like 87%, I had the numbers here, yes, 87% of blacks, um, did not live in poverty before 1960. So 87% of black families did not live in poverty uh, as defined by the federal government. I mean, you know, the federal government always has that poverty line. 87% of black families did not live in poverty before 1960s. Um, but after the 1960s, after the implementation of these welfare states, that number fell to 47%. So you, you had almost a 40% decline in black family economics after all of these welfare programs were implemented. Um, that's unheard of. And if anybody had, you know, if we had people that were of, that had values in our government programs <laughs> and people people made decisions and talked from a, from a position of values and principles, they would have to undo all of this stuff. Right. Well, because how would you do it? How would you, how would you end it? How would you undo the damage that has been done by creating an entire class of, of citizenry completely dependent upon the government for financial well-being? Well, you'd have to do what the, what, the, what the last study that I showed from Dr. Borges. You just get rid of it. You literally decline it. Now, the fear, the assumption of most people is that, well, if we pull the welfare benefits or we reduce them, they're going to spiral further out of control. No, the social science shows just the opposite happens. People adapt. People, people adapt and they find new ways. And even in those immigrant, those immigrant communities where their welfare benefits were declined, they would increase their labor pool. The only way to increase the labor pool, and you know, until COVID-19 hit, we saw the lowest black unemployment in the history of the nation. That's correct. Yep. We saw the, let me repeat that. We had the lowest percentage of black unemployment in the history of the nation just before COVID-19 hit. Now, you want to you want to 
put that all on Obama. You want to put that all on Trump. I'm not here to talk about that just yet. We can have that discussion, but that's a completely different discussion for another night. But the fact remains, we had the lowest black unemployment in the history of the United States up until COVID-19 hit. So black communities were actually increasing. I think a majority of, a majority of adults in the black community do want to have jobs. And so if you, yes, how do you get rid of it when so many people are dependent upon welfare? You get rid of it. You get rid of it. All right. You have to go. So I'm going to wrap this up here in just a couple of minutes. Um, but if you uh, can pause it, I think I can get him back to right. bed. Well, let's take a break. Okay. We'll quick and we'll okay. come, we'll come right back. All we'll right. take a break and we'll come right back. We're back. We're back because, you know, we're talking about fatherhood now in relation to all of these, uh, these riots. And what's funny is Jason had to go off and, and be a, be a dad. So, yeah. uh, he, his, uh, his little boy is seven, six, seven month old, right? Seven months, yeah. Uh, decided to wake up at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, so. little little mini night terror moment. Yeah, Did you has. breastfeed him? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Try to sell him back to sleep. Actually, it's really weird because he's, uh, he's, he's out. He's asleep. Mm -hmm. But he's screaming and hollering like, you know, like he's not. It's, it's, uh, that usually means they're not. I hope that... Uh, Kind of goes away. <laughs> we'll see. That's what you get for taking him to the lake. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might as well go to the lake. <laughs> right. Uh, so we were talking about the lack of, you know, setting up all of this data in terms of the, the, the lack of lack of fatherhood. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's some interesting data that I also wanted to run by you. Um, so okay. there's, there's a website called kidscount.org and they capture a lot of statistics related to children and a variety of different things. And they actually have statistics related to, uh, related to data about uh, with children and single parent families by race in the United States. Imagine that. Yep. And the latest data they have out there is from, goes from 2009 through 2018. So you can look at that and you can look at all the different breakdowns by race. And what's interesting is if you look at black or African-American um, from 2009 to 2018, and it fluctuates just maybe one, maybe two percentage points. But for the most part, it's pretty steady at about 66, 67% uh, over that time period. In other words, about 66% of children um, live in, of black children live in single parent homes. Um, when you contrast that with, with white families, um, it, the white families, it fluctuates by one point between 24, 25%. So let's just say 25% for the sake of argument, 25% of all white children live in single parent homes. And that's, that, that's quite astounding. When you compare the numbers to single father versus single mothers, most children overwhelmingly live in single mother homes um, as opposed to single father homes. So only about maybe 2% of this is going to fall out and fall into the father head category as opposed to the, the other, you know, re remaining portion of, of the percentage falling under, under uh, the mothers. So the vast majority of black children, well, 
60, about 67% of black children live in single parent homes, the majority of which are black mothers. So we, we don't have, we're starting to see this trend of a lack of fathers. Now, the problem here, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to blame another group. I'm going to throw this out here, right? Um, because feminism has gone, I'm pulling it all in now. I can hear everybody, I can see everybody has the same reaction as Jason. Um, but I'm just going to bring up one point about feminism. Feminists in the, after the 1960s and particularly, you know, after the pill was invented and all this kind of stuff, um, they have consistently made an argument that fathers are not needed in the home. Right. Um, they, they don't need to be there and that women can, can take care, mothers can take care of their children. They don't need fathers in the home and therefore the, the women can be both mother and father, et cetera, et cetera. They've made that argument for decades. And so we're seeing this in, I'm not saying feminists are directly responsible for the lack of fathers in black homes. I'm not saying that at all, but we have another, we have another area of our own society that is celebrating when women take care of children by themselves. Um, and it, are they, are they responsible for some women who decide, screw it, I'm going to go and just raise my kids on my own? Well, maybe, Right. Although what I'm, my point in bringing up the, bringing up feminists in this in this debate is simply that they're promoting the idea, they just mm -hmm. promote the idea. Okay, sure, uh, they're out in our society and they're promoting that idea. So then the question becomes: Well, what happens when dads are not in are not in the home? Um, and there's some great statistics related to that, and I just want to go over a couple of these with you. Um, because uh, I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. So, um, when fathers are not in the are not in the home, children are overall, um, you know, less emotionally stable. Um, children who live with their dads do better in schools. Um, these statistics are taken directly from an organization called Fatherhood Fatherhood .org. Um, Let's see, we have uh, adolescent teen boys who live with their dads are less likely to carry guns and deal drugs. Um, we've Now, let me, let me clarify, because I, I, I have to make sure I understand when we we're talking about data, we want to make sure we understand the parameters. So sure. when you are, are relaying these statistics, you're talking about um, you know, whether teen boys or just children living with their father, are you saying with both parents and the father is involved? or father only? I wanna make sure I understand your yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question. So keep in mind that the what I'm what I'm looking at in terms of these statistics, these are various summaries from all different types of social social studies that have been been conducted on fathers in the homes. So in some situations, the father is at least involved on a regular basis. He may not live in the home. In many cases, the father is living in the home. So some of these statistics kind of border on a, on a little bit, but it's really looking at our fathers central in the children's lives. Um, where things really get interesting are, you know, some of these some of these particular studies are asking do, are looking at the fact that the father is not there, and then what happens when the father is not living in the home is not not just hey, I get to see my kids on the weekends, that's kind of father involvement. And in some of those situations, these statistics are lower. Where the statistics really hit home are the ones that specifically look at children being raised in single parent, in single parent families. So there is a blend there, and that's good to point out. Okay. Um, let's see, uh, according to the US Census Bureau, 19.5 million children live without a father in the home. 
That's pretty staggering. It's a pretty staggering number. Boys have fewer behavior problems and girls have fewer psychological problems when they have involved dads. So again, that could be dad visiting on the weekends or at least if nothing else, living in the home. Um, but there are some, uh, there are some crazy ones, particularly this one, this one is, and, and this is good, not just for boys, but for, but for girls. In fact, um, young girls have, are, are less likely to get pregnant at a, at a young age if their father is in the home and influential and women, young women who do not have fathers in their lives, um, they end up, they are far more likely to get pregnant and to raise their own children without the child's father, their now their new child's father in the home as well. So they're far more likely to do that when their dads are not present. But this one is astounding. <sighs> Individuals from father absent homes are 279% more likely to carry guns and deal drugs than peers living with their fathers. 279%. Now I ask you, we, oh. we started this whole conversation looking at why is it that the white communities, why is it that the Hispanic communities are not out rioting when, when one of theirs gets killed by a, by a police officer, but the black community is out there rioting. We were, and I, we started this whole conversation by looking at that. Right, right, right. 279% are more likely to carry guns and deal drugs than peers living with their fathers. And adolescent boys, this ties nicely into it, adolescent boys with absent fathers are more likely to engage in delinquency than those with fathers who are present. And then when you combine it with this last fact that I'm going to give you, 92% of parents in prison are fathers. We've got this round around this round robin situation. You have young men getting women pregnant. They go off into jail because they don't have fathers in the home. They're delinquents. They're getting into. Remember, we talked about all of this violent crime and how blacks were were more susceptible or outperforming violent crimes than other races, especially whites. And if they're outperforming violent crimes, they're more likely to get murdered. They're more likely to get to get into toughs with the, with the, uh, with the cops and they're more likely to go to prison. And now we're just, it's just a never ending cycle. We just got this never ending cycle of parents being absent from the homes and these men creating more and more children who now have no parent in the home. And this is just a self perpetuating cycle. These are the same people out there who think it's okay to riot and loot. They're delinquents. I'm sorry, but they are delinquents. They all deserve to be in prison. And I, and I would be willing to bet money based on all of the data and all of the information that I've presented to you tonight, that the vast majority of these, of these young men who are out there ages seven to, 17 to 29 probably did not have a father in the home. It's a guess. All I can do is guess. But the reason why I'm guessing is because of all of this data that I've presented. Oh, yeah. No, and I, I can tell you right now, if my dad was still alive um, and I was out there, Oh, 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 well, I wouldn't be, let's just put it that way. You I know wouldn't I be. wouldn't be. Um, and, and you know, my, um, I, I even explained to my daughter what I was watching cause she saw me watching the news the other night. And I said, you know, these people are just, they're, they're very upset over what happened and they don't know what to do. Um, and she looked at me kind of funny. She goes, but daddy, that's not right. Right. That's bad. Yes, 
that's bad. Why does my four-year-old know that? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I got a handful of theories on that, but honestly, it, it's, and I will call it the entire, the parental unit that my wife and I make up. Um, we have, have set boundaries and, and educated her on right and wrong. And we haven't talked about why rioting and burning down an auto zone um, is bad. But I think even, even my four-year-old can understand that that is not going to provide any kind of justice um, because that's a conversation that my dad would have with me. You know, it is right to be upset when injustice is done. It is right to call um, for justice to be done and, and for those wrongs to be set right. Now, there is no way you're going to be able to set a right um, back and that's going to bring George Floyd back. It's not going to happen. But by burning down your own community in which you live, you are not doing any kind of justice to Mr. Floyd or his family or anyone else affected by that. Matter of fact, you are doing the greatest injustice to him by taking all of the attention which should be paid there and putting it on yourself. And that does nobody any good. You're literally burning down your own house. Yeah. And, it, and it's insane. And there, you know, to bring this full circle at the beginning, I also talked about, and I've mentioned it a little bit, right? We've talked about how blacks are disproportionately committing these crimes. We, we talked a little bit about why that might be the case based on some evidence, but we also talked about, or I brought up the issue that well, we're not seeing this in the Hispanic community, despite mm -hmm. Hispanics being killed by cops from time to time, almost in, you know, at almost equal levels, not exactly equal. They're just a little bit behind, but they're not that far behind from the blacks right. that are being killed. But we don't see the, the Hispanic community going out and, and rioting and committing all of these things. And the Hispanic community is not wealthy. The vast majority of Hispanics in, throughout the United States are not wealthier than whites. They may or may not be wealthier than blacks, but a vast majority of them do live in poverty. And there's this, uh, there was research that was conducted by two social scientists. It was published in 2016. And it was actually, their study looked at Latino father involvement in the United States. And so they talk about how Latinos are, are one of the, are the fastest growing minority group in the United States. In fact, there are some social scientists who, who predict by, I think it's like by year, I don't know, 2040, I think the, the majority of Americans will actually be Hispanic. They'll overtake the, the whites in, in the United States by 2040, 2050, somewhere around there. I can't remember if it's on my head. Mm -hmm. and, and Hispanic in this category, even within this, uh, this particular research that was done, um, considered uh, various um, origins, various countries of origin, like such as Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Dominican Republic, you know, various countries throughout South and Central America, et cetera. Sure. Okay, so, um, so they, they wrote, and I'm reading here from the introduction, it says, it is not surprising then that Latinos are highly diverse in country of origin, Nativity, socioeconomic status, and immigration experience. As a group, Latinos are on average less educated and have lower incomes than their white counterparts. However, compared to other minority men of similar income and education, blacks, but they're not mentioned here, Latino fathers are more likely to be resident, meaning Latino fathers are more likely to live in the home. That's right. what they mean here when they're right. using the word resident. 
Despite the rapid rise in non-marital births among Latinos, most of these births are to parents who live together, meaning the parents cohabitate. They are under the same roof. That is, most Latino children live in households where fathers are accessible and share in their daily care. In spite of the demographic risks, Latino children also experience protective factors to parent households. Thus, examining the role of Latino fathers in children's lives requires understanding both risk and resilience processes. So we do see, based on, based on research that's being, that's being conducted, we do see more Latinos li fathers living in the home. That's supported not only in this, in this study, but it's also supported amongst the, uh, the, the statistics that I was showing where it said, you know, 67% of black children are raised in single parent homes. 25% of white children are raised in single parent homes. According to that same statistic, I think it was around 40% of Hispanic um, uh, children are living in single parent homes. Although that particular statistic doesn't break down in terms of, it doesn't, it, it's not clear how they're defining Hispanic. Are they defining it with all of those other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. breakdowns as this research did? So it might be less uh, or it might kind of stay around 40% depending on how they define it. But still, the uh, a vast more Hispanic children are being raised in two-parent homes than black children. Um, and so now we can at least surmise that, well, if that's the case, they have these fathers in their lives and they're not out there rioting. And I think that, I think that says something to, I think that, I think that, I think all of this should at least put people on pause and say, you know what, are blacks really oppressed in this country? And I think we have to ask that question. I think that's a question that deserves to be asked is, are they really oppressed? Is this really cops going out and hunting black men? Are those premises, do those premises hold water? And I don't think they do. No, and I, I don't think the data supports that. Now, um, the, the sentiment supports that, and that is, uh, again, the overwhelming issue. It's right now what we're seeing is just rage and outlash. Um, but what I, think, what I think you and I are really trying to look at is, is where should the rage and outlash be focused? Now, I am not in any way detracting from the travesty that has happened to this gentlemen i i hope that everybody understands at least for myself because i've said it a couple times and, and lucy I'm, I'm gonna assume you're you're right there with me what happened to george floyd was an absolute travesty and should never have happened agreed absolutely agree i agree. think it was terrible yeah what what bothers me the most is that what has happened since is completely misplaced rage and it is misplaced it's become a misplaced cause um it's it's a misplaced crusade excuse me it's probably the more better way of actually saying that. the the introspection should be is why do these why do these spawn such uh, overwhelming response and what is that response geared towards? Um, you know, uh, we, we saw the same thing with um, Mr. Brown. I'm going to forget his first name. Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, the actual situation in that case is vastly different than this one, I believe, in looking at the actual facts of the situation. And yet, the violent response is the exact 
same. And that it, it's, <laughs> I'm having a real hard time trying to keep calm and uh, articulate myself here a little bit, but the introspection on the, on the actual demographic of what is going on really needs to be something that we actually look at honestly in this country instead of reiterating these talking points that get us nowhere. And not only is it not getting us anywhere and actually addressing the issues at hand, you actually feed those negative emotions that just expound the problem. And until we actually look at the situation on, on, these, on the, the black communities and the Hispanic communities and those what I really consider to be a welfare-driven society, only if we actually look at that honestly and genuinely are we going to get to a place where we can actually solve this problem. And I'm sorry, reparations is not the answer. I mean, if you really believe that reparations is to what tune, to what amount, how would you disperse it? And even if that were the case, what are you do, doing besides furthering an idea of a welfare state already in existence? I mean, I if, we actually, if we actually distributed, let's just pretend, mm -hmm. to every um, black home, if we took $10 trillion and distributed that evenly, would that be enough? Would that solve the problem? The honest answer, and I think everyone out there knows it, is no. All that you are going to do is permeate a problem that's already in existence in the entire fair welfare society. Well, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a solid argument for reparations from slavery. In fact, given given the economic rise of of blacks after slavery, I mean, looking at at the research that. Dr. Thomas Sowell has has done. Uh, he makes he makes a great argument that that blacks increased their economic wealth a hundred years in the hundred years after slavery. Um, where I think they have a better chance of of making a case for reparations should be the damages inflicted after 1960 uh, because of the welfare state because mm -hmm. the 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 what Congress and various states have put in place in terms of the, in terms of uh, welfare handouts that led to so much economic disaster among black communities, more so than the freeing of the slaves after slavery. Sure. So, but we're not having that conversation. Look, you know, there, there are going to be people that are going to listen to this and, and they may not even get to the end of this, uh, <laughs> you know, the end of our, our episode, <laughs> Might not. um, because they're going to hear all of this and, it's going to attack their fundamental beliefs around this issue. And they're not going to like that. It's going to put a spotlight on things and it's going to challenge them to think about this issue, this issue that is rampaging in cities across America. It's going to force them to shine a light on some dark areas. And it's going to say, Hey, you know what? The premises that the premises that you've been operating under are likely incorrect. And now you have to go back to the drawing board and rethink your belief and value systems. And when that happens, people tend to run away from that. They don't like to right. do that right. because they've held so deeply into the, onto those beliefs. These beliefs become like religion and they can't right. look at them with, in, in a negative way because it says that they've been thinking incorrectly this entire time. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we discussed this a little bit, nowhere near um, as uh, um, pinpointed, I guess, when we were talking about values and principles and um, your situation that you ran into on Twitter, where it became a, a racial issue. Um, if this is about justice for injustice, then re- you should be rejoicing in what is happening. The, honestly, the, the response that our government system has put in place and the amount of resources dedicated to actually investigating and following up on this incident far surpasses almost any crime that has been committed in the last uh, 150 years. I mean, the um, um, Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, their agencies upon agencies have been actually enlisted to investigate this one instance around one man. That should be a cause for actual celebration in seeing that justice is being served. And yet, people are, are, like you said, almost defending an attack on what they believe to be almost a religious belief, where now all it is is it's just an emotional response, and it's going in the wrong direction. So really understanding what that value is that you are vehemently defending analyze where that's being attacked and how and then again if it really is against this idea or belief or this principle belief that you have that all cops whether they're white black hispanic latino doesn't matter all police are out to only go kill black people then some of that data should actually go to defend that belief if you believe that. But if the data is contrary, then you need to take some introspection and actually look at that, analyze it, and then start to understand what's going on. You know, and on the, on the topic of, or the idea of people not wanting to let go of their fundamental beliefs because they have to redefine their values. Um, there, was a, there was a clip that was shared across social media um, the other day on the first nights of the, it took place during the first night of the Minnesota or the Minneapolis riots. Um, The, the rioters were burning these buildings and MSNBC, it was a clip that was aired on MSNBC where the reporter is standing amongst all of these rioters and they're kind of walking around in the back. The rioters are walking around in the background and in, in the background, it's nighttime, and in the background, you can see this gigantic conflagration. This building is being burned to the ground, and the MSNBC journalist has the audacity to look into the, into the camera and say that the, that the protests were peaceful. And, <laughs> <laughs> and how can you actually claim with a straight face that the protests are peaceful? When you're standing amongst the rioters and there's a burning, there's a, a building that is literally being burned to the ground. It wasn't just like a simple fire, you know, outside, like a, maybe a bonfire. No, the entire, there were flames like 30 feet high behind him. And he's saying, no, this is a peaceful protest. Right. They're, they're going right. out of, this is an example of how people will go out of their way. They cannot they cannot change their their value system because that strikes too core to their heart. And so they're willing to, even in the face of overwhelming visual evidence, they don't even want to consider that because they have to fundamentally 
look at what it is that they believed for so long. And many, for many folks, they've believed these things for the vast majority of their lives. So sure. when they hear what we've talked about tonight, there are going to be people that they cannot stomach that. They cannot no. stomach it. And they will just say, well, screw these guys. And they will call us racists. Yep. They will call us yep. misogynists. They, because we br I brought up feminism, right? They're going to call us all of these things. They're going to say we hate black people. They're going to say we want black people killed. Uh, and all of which is not true. In fact, the opposite is true. We, we, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I weep for what's happened to the black community since 1960. I weep for their low economic status. I weep for the fact that we have young men who are lost and who um, are going on a road to prison. And that breaks my heart. It literally breaks my heart. Well, and, and we should be having a uh, very thought-provoking discussion in this country as a whole, not just you and I. But how do we turn the tide of that? How do we how do we lay some groundwork where we've got um, an avenue of productivity and focus for those poor lost individuals? And that doesn't that's not just <laughs> or at all geared toward just the black community. There's a lot of other people who fall into that category, who are um, dependent upon the welfare state, who are um, fatherless in their home, who need that guidance and who need that um, lending hand back towards being a productive member of society who don't have that. How do we solve that? Well, I can guarantee you it's not by burning down the buildings in our own backyard. Yeah. I'm going to play this little clip for you. Uh, now this clip was actually filmed during the 1992 LA riots. You know, we have a lot of people, there are a lot of people in this country, namely, you know, millennials and Generation Z, they think all of this, uh, this rioting kind of stuff, um, they, they think this is new. And brand new. They, right. They think this is new, that this has never happened before. Well, way, way back in 1992, a little thing called the LA riots, again, because, and that was tragic, right? That was probably one of the very first evidences in, in my lifetime, anyway, that I can think of, of uh, cops that, that beat, um, you know, a black man and, um, and it was terrible. And that sparked these, that sparked some racial riots as well. But uh, there were, there were terrible, terrible uh, revenge attacks committed by blacks against whites during the LA riots. Um, they pulled, the, you know, there were rioters pulled a, a white truck driver out of his diesel truck and beat him on camera. Um, and I, I don't, I don't remember, if, I don't think they killed him, but I think they, um, they no, put him in the hospital. Survived. Yeah, they put him in the hospital. Yeah. And he was—he almost died. I mean, they hit him with a brick to the head, um, which was pretty brutal. Um, but I'm going to play this clip to you. This was this was filmed in 1992. It could have been filmed over this weekend, just the same, because the, the exact the exact same sentiment um, is happening across the country. So here's this. Come on, Uncle. I work too hard for this. I don't even understand nothing.
tried to make it. I want to cry for this guy. Yeah, I'd said breaking my heart, man. And and you're right. That could be that could have been filmed yesterday. Could have been filmed the day before. You know, you're. God, this is this is not. This is a this is a problem that doesn't that that the that the the poor black communities it it, it lives with them it it lives I'm not saying that they're on their own to fix this I'm not saying that the black community should be let out to dry these are Americans I mean this that man right there I'm sorry but he's an American and he didn't deserve any of that he didn't deserve that treatment um, and and these are thugs they destroyed his business and there was. There was an article over the weekend, uh, another, uh, another black business owner, just as this guy, uh, his business was burnt down to the ground and was looted and his whole, everything that he put into it was destroyed. And, he, and here's, the, here's the thing that infuriates me. So many people are saying, well, these businesses have insurance. Insurance will pay for it. And what people don't understand is, is not all of these businesses have insurance. First of all, the, the black man who recently had, who over the weekend had his business destroyed, well, he was in tears because he said, hey, he didn't have insurance. He put all of his savings into it and he didn't have insurance. But even those businesses that do have insurance, not all insurance comes with clauses to protect you from riots. From riots and, and looting. No, most, most businesses are required to have an insurance, and that's usually a liability coverage for all of the stupid friggin' slip and fall accidents that Correct. happen in and around your door, which don't even get me started on all that. But that's about the extent of what a lot of these small businesses are able to afford. It's a small liability insurance policy for anybody who actually might get injured or anything around their business. It's not to, in, to cover them from people throwing a Molotov cocktail through their window and stealing everything they've worked their entire lives to get. And unfortunately, and, I, and I'm going to make a statement, it's probably not going to sit well with a lot of people, but a majority of the people that are, that are doing these They've never had to work for anything like this in their entire life. So they can't appreciate that. If they did, they wouldn't be out there. And even in some cases where the people do have insurance, and even if the insurance does cover some of this, there are still going to be businesses that fail. Why? Because many of those businesses are destroyed. And it's going to take months for those businesses to rebuild. And that means a lack of revenue over the entire course of those maybe three months, six months, 18 months that it's going to take to rebuild those businesses. They're not going to be able to make money. They're not going to, that's, that's money that has to replace. You're destroying their existing livelihood right now. Right. You're not, it's not giving them money to sustain over the coming months to rebuild that business. And that that's gone. And so well, some and of those businesses are going to, are gone forever. Fine. All right. So let, let's, let's stick it to the man, right? And let's take one of these, these big companies, call it a Safeway. You know what? You're probably not going to hurt the store owner. He loses his, 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 uh, his business and that grocery store goes up. What about the other people that work there? What right. about all the employees who are trying, who just got their job maybe back? because they've been stuck at home due to all this COVID junk. And they've just finally started actually being able to show up to work so that they can start providing food and, and making sure that their mortgage is paid and that their homes are paid for, their rent's paid for, their kids are provided for. 
What about all of them? You know what? That store owner might have insurance and they might be able to make it for the amount of time that it takes to rebuild that store and actually get something going. What about all the employees who are counting on that paycheck to provide for their families? They don't have insurance to cover them for their lost wages. But you don't care about any of them. And you know what? That may sound harsh, but you don't care about any of them. You might as well go burn down their house. Because that's about what you're doing is you're stripping them of their livelihood. And you tell me how any of that gets any kind of justice for George Floyd. And there's no easy way to fix all of this. I, there's there's simple things that could be done initially, but there's it would take a tremendous amount of fortitude on behalf of politicians who want to to say, you know what, we're going to reduce welfare welfare benefits. We're going to encourage people to get jobs. Um, you know, there are tons of different uh, worker programs. I mean, we've even created these in in these communities where people can go and they can learn a new skill or you know learn a learn a trade. Um, there's plenty of opportunity for individuals to go to the community colleges and, and learn a skill. Um, many of these people's are, people aren't taking advantage of those programs. Um, and it could be because they're just, it's too beneficial for them to remain on welfare. Who knows, right? Those, those are other questions and I'm hypothesizing here. Those are other questions that, that may have different answers to them. Um, my point being is that, you know, these communities, they own a lot of this. But at the same time, these communities are also Americans and they should be supported by other communities throughout America, but not in the way that we've been supporting them or think that we've been supporting them since 1960. Things have to change. And I don't necessarily know what those answers are. We don't have those answers today. We could probably debate those, but that's that's probably a time for another topic. Yeah, I agree. Um, and... I'll be I'll be 100% honest, and and, and you know this. I, I I did not want to really dive into this tonight, um, or anytime soon. Actually, I think when <laughs> when we discussed it uh, a couple of days ago, I said, you know, I think it's probably best we let the emotions um, settle down from this a little bit, so that we can look at this honestly. Um, but I agree with you, especially when it comes to uh, any of our listeners out there wanting it. It's here, you know, it's really easy to have a conversation about values and principles and um, critical thinking and looking at things that actually matter in our daily lives when it's talking about things like this in the past. When you're looking at it right now and you're faced with that right in the moment, it is incredibly challenging to be able to have a, a honest discussion about it, to look at it critically and internally, to have a value and principle-based discussion and, and try to do that honestly. That's tough. And that's where I think most of the people who will probably listen to this show all the way through to the end um, should hopefully be able to at least garner some perspective. Yeah. Well, I don't know where we go from here. 
Thanks for indulging me and the few listeners on, uh, on talking about this topic. I think we kind of beat it to death. I think we covered it from a pretty interesting angle, though. I, we didn't just complain about the riots or anything. My, my hope was I wanted to add something um, new to the conversation, interesting to the conversation. I wanted to get people to think about things a little differently. Um, you know, my hypothesis, is it true? I don't know. Um, I would be willing to entertain other theories that people might have if they think there are other things, but don't tell me that you're, that the cops are hunting blacks because the evidence doesn't support it. Don't tell me it's slavery because the evidence doesn't support that either. Don't tell me it's not the lack of fathers because the evidence doesn't support that either. Could it be something else? Maybe. And let's, and I'm willing to entertain those. But you're going to have to, you know, it's not just about your opinion, but it's about what you can prove. So send us your emails, send us your comments. I would love to hear about it. I know Jason would love to hear about it. Absolutely. Um, and you can find us on Facebook at AZ Fusion Underground. You can send us emails at contact at fusionunderground.net. You can find us on Twitter at the FU Brothers. Um, that's our handle on, on Twitter. Um, and you can find all of our RSS feeds, links to our, our YouTube channel and everything on fusionunderground.net. But Facebook also has the link out there to our YouTube videos, so you can catch the links out there as well. Um, so thanks for hanging in there, everybody. Um, and uh, really appreciate it. And until next time, for Jason Moret, I'm Manuel Ramirez, and you've been listening to the Fusion Underground. Peace. Thank you. Thank you.